welcome to the JNA podcast. My name is Dr. Lauren Buell, and I'm a neuroanesthesiologist and director of neuroanesthesiology education at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. On behalf of the Trainee Engagement Committee, I'll be presenting a review article from the October 2020 issue of JNA entitled Perioperative Management of Direct Oral Anticoagulants and Intracranial Surgery by Drs. John Porter and Judith Dinsmore. This podcast was written and produced in conjunction with Dr. Matthew Vangelil at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. As we're all well aware, the advent of direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, has rapidly changed the landscape of anticoagulation practice in recent years. Amidst all of these new agents, there's still significant uncertainty about their management in the perioperative setting. And this uncertainty is heightened for neurosurgical procedures, where the consequences of even a small amount of bleeding may be catastrophic. In this review, Porter and Dinsmore summarized the currently available data on DOACs and proposed basic guidelines for their clinical management for both elective and emergent neurosurgical procedures, with the caveat that clinical trials for DOACs to date have excluded neurosurgical patients as a very high-risk population. Because of this, the author's guidance is primarily based on expert opinion, observational studies, findings in general surgical populations, and extrapolation from pharmacologic data. Before we dive into the paper, let's do a quick review of DOACs. These drugs are indicated for a number of common clinical conditions, including the prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism and the prevention of cardioembolic events in patients with atrial fibrillation. There are two main classes of DOACs, the direct thrombin inhibitors and factor 10A inhibitors. Dabigatran, trade name Pradaxa, is the only oral direct thrombin inhibitor you'll likely encounter in the outpatient setting. The factor 10A inhibitors are a larger group, with names all ending in exaban, including apixaban, trade name Eliquis, rivaroxaban, trade name Xarelto, and adoxaban, trade name Savisa. Because both classes of DOACs directly target enzymes in the coagulation cascade, they have rapid and predictable anticoagulant effects that make them preferable to traditional vitamin K antagonists like warfarin. They also have a short half-life and predictable pharmacokinetics that preclude the need for therapeutic monitoring and have fewer drug-drug and drug-diet interactions. The overall risk of bleeding is also reduced with DOACs compared to warfarin, including a reduced risk of secondary hemorrhage in the setting of traumatic brain injury and reduced frequency of non-traumatic intracerebral hemorrhage. On the other hand, given the recency of their development, there are still challenges surrounding the use of DOACs, including how best to determine the extent of their anticoagulant effects and how to reverse these effects in the setting of clinically significant bleeding. Clinical guidelines have been developed to address these challenges in the perioperative period. As with traditional vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, the perioperative management of DOACs must balance the risk of bleeding with the risk of thrombosis associated with the interruption of therapy. In short, for each individual patient presenting for a neurosurgical intervention, you must ask yourself, one, does anticoagulation need to be interrupted? Two, what is the optimal timing of said interruption? Three, is bridging therapy indicated? And four, how and when should anticoagulation be resumed? We can dispense with the first question of whether anticoagulation needs to be interrupted, because for neurosurgical procedures, the answer is nearly always yes. But the remaining questions require more consideration. The optimal duration to hold DOACs preoperatively is dictated by two main factors, their half-life, and the periprocedural bleeding risk. 
which for neurosurgical procedures is essentially always very high. The half-life of each DOAC is variably dependent on renal function and to a lesser extent, hepatic function. So when you encounter a patient with renal impairment, you must be cognizant of the fact that the extent and duration of anticoagulation may be significantly enhanced depending on the DOAC in question. Porter and Dinsmore note the difficulty of creating guidelines for neurosurgical procedures when these patients have largely been excluded from studies of DOACs to date. But they extrapolate from existing data and several society recommendations to propose an algorithm for DOAC interruption in the setting of elective intracranial surgery that is based on whether the DOAC is a direct thrombin inhibitor or a factor 10A inhibitor, and on the patient's renal function. For patients with normal renal function, the authors recommend holding both dabigatran and the factor 10A inhibitors for at least 72 hours or three days prior to surgery, in line with guidelines from the French Working Group and the American and European Regional Anesthesia Societies. For patients with impaired renal function, the management of the different classes of DOACs diverges. Whereas all of the factor 10A inhibitors should still be held for at least 72 hours prior to surgery regardless of renal function, the authors recommend extending this period for dabigatran based on the level of renal impairment. In patients with a creatinine clearance of 50 to 80 milliliters per minute, they recommend holding dabigatran for 96 hours or four days prior to surgery. And for patients with a creatinine clearance of 30 to 50 milliliters per minute, they recommend 120 hours or five days. This differential approach follows from the fact that the half-life of dabigatran is affected to a greater extent by renal function, leading to significant prolongation of its anticoagulation effects in patients with renal impairment. The question of whether bridging therapy with short-acting parenteral agents should be used in the setting of DOAC interruption relates to the risk of thromboembolism. Most anesthesiologists are familiar with patients on warfarin being bridged with heparin perioperatively if the risk for thrombotic events is considered to be high. Porter and Dinsmore argue that bridging therapy should not be used routinely for elective neurosurgical procedures owing to the short onset and offset of the anticoagulant effects of DOACs. Their argument is based on findings by other groups that bridging therapy increases bleeding risk without reducing the rate of thromboembolism. The authors do raise an important caveat to this argument, however, for patients at very high risk for thromboembolism, including those with mechanical heart valves, recent stroke, and recent or recurrent venous thromboembolism. These patients should be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis and may benefit from multidisciplinary consultation. The final question of when to restart anticoagulation following neurosurgical procedures is perhaps the most challenging. Given the rapid onset of the anticoagulant effects of DOACs, it is imperative to defer reinitiation of these drugs postoperatively until bleeding risk has subsided. With this in mind, Porter and Dinsmore suggest resuming DOAC agents 72 hours postoperatively for routine elective neurosurgical cases, with consideration of longer or shorter intervals in patients at high risk for bleeding or thromboembolism. This recommendation will certainly be refined in the coming years as we collect more data from neurosurgical patients specifically. Having reviewed the evidence for perioperative DOAC management for elective neurosurgical cases, Porter and Dinsmore next turn their attention to the acute neurosurgical setting. Patients in need of urgent or emergent neurosurgical interventions are a particular challenge for anesthesiologists and neurosurgeons, as they often present with an unclear or unknown anticoagulation status. The authors draw a distinction in the management strategy based on the urgency of neurosurgical intervention. For patients in whom intervention can be delayed for at least eight hours, the authors recommend making a serious attempt 
at measuring the level of anticoagulation rather than reflexively administering a reversal agent, which can increase the risk of thrombotic complications and be hugely expensive. If the patient or their proxy is a reliable medical historian, the best way to determine anticoagulation status may be simply to ask about the timing of the last dose of DOAC. This information, combined with the patient's renal function, can be used to estimate the current level of anticoagulation and guide the necessity and dosing of reversal therapy. In the absence of clinical history, determining the actual level of anticoagulation is more challenging, as reliable laboratory tests to monitor DOACs have not been established. Conventional coagulation assays are generally unhelpful with regard to DOACs. Therapeutic dobigatran dosing has been associated with both falsely low and falsely high INR values. And while PT level may be useful as a screening test for recent rivaroxaban use, it has not been shown to correlate with the risk of major bleeding. Thromboelastography, or TEG, is a promising frontier for quantifying the effects of DOACs, but it currently has limited utility. In light of these limitations, Porter and Dinsmore recommend a practical approach using DOAC-specific assays to determine plasma drug levels. While these levels do not directly correlate with anticoagulation status, drug levels below a minimum threshold can be considered negligible, thus excluding residual anticoagulant effects and precluding the need for reversal therapy. Plasma drug levels above this threshold should prompt a discussion of surgical timing and the need for reversal therapy. As is often the case, however, the need for neurosurgical intervention may be emergent, making the use of DOAC-specific assays infeasible. In these cases, Porter and Dinsmore recommend pursuing DOAC reversal. There are currently two clinically available reversal agents. Idarachizumab, also known as Praxbind, was introduced in 2015 to reverse dibigatran. It's a monoclonal antibody fragment with high specificity and affinity for dibigatran, thereby rapidly reversing its anticoagulant effects. The second agent, Andexanet alpha, is an engineered variant of factor 10A and can be used to reverse all of the factor 10A inhibitors. While both of these agents are highly effective, they are also highly expensive with a single dose of idarachizumab going for more than $3,000 U.S. dollars, and a single dose of andexanet alpha going for more than $30,000 U.S. dollars. Both should be reserved only for true emergencies. To summarize, Porter and Dinsmore give anesthesiologists important guidance on the perioperative management of DOACs for neurosurgical procedures. In the absence of clinical studies to determine the safe perioperative use of DOACs in this patient cohort, the authors provide appropriately conservative recommendations extrapolated from general surgical populations and consensus guidelines from a number of societies to thoughtfully balance the dual risks of bleeding and thrombosis. They highlight the specific considerations that go into management decisions involving DOACs for both elective and emergent neurosurgical interventions. In the coming years, we should see further refinement of these recommendations as our clinical experience with DOACs grows and studies including neurosurgical patients become available. Perioperative DOAC management will be an area of exciting evolution with important implications for neuroanesthesiologists, neurosurgeons, and all medical providers who care for neurosurgical patients. And with that, I'll conclude this JNA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoyed it and have a great day.